Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. I'm your host, John Powers. And today, we talk to one of the nicest guys in the renewable energy industry, Chad Farrell. Chad's the CEO and founder of Encore Renewable Energy. He's got over 20 years of experience in the space developing projects. Talk a lot about his amazing background, the work he does passionately in, in Vermont or on climate, and of course, the incredible work Encore does developing projects. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Thanks. Chad, welcome to Experts Only Podcast. Thanks, John. It's uh, tremendous to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Just to set the stage for the audience, uh, Chad and I are interviewing this in the middle of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, so we're both sort of working out of our home offices. Uh, there's a lot going on in the industry. We'll definitely talk on some of that. But you know, Chad, I want to step back. You know, you grew up in uh, in, the, in the Boston area. Decided to go to school for mechanical engineering at, at Bucknell. Talk about you know what led you to Bucknell. How did you decide to get into the engineering side of things? Oh, that's a good question. Going all the way back to Bucknell. Um, I was a competitive swimmer growing up and, um, I, you know, I think, uh, Bucknell had a, had a good team and I, you know, was sort of recruited to, uh, to, cause it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. And I, I certainly didn't go there for the cultural offerings (laughs) of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, but, uh, no, it was, uh, so yeah, mainly, um, it was a good school. Uh, you know, it was one of the better schools that I, I got into and I was yeah. recruited to, to swim there. And uh, I really liked Bucknell because yes, I did end up studying engineering, but I, I remember thinking, well, they've got really good liberal arts and good engineering. That seems like a pretty good place for me to land at, you know, 17, 18 years old, not knowing what the heck I want to do yeah. with my life. So uh, it was a good experience. I, I still have lifelong friends that I'm very close with from Bucknell. Uh, we're, you know, supporting each other through this crazy new reality of COVID-19 and yeah. get a couple of different text chains going with uh, <laughs> you know, they're providing moments of levity and humor throughout the day. Um, yeah. My, so my college buddies and I all joined a, a workout app uh, for no reason just to like push each other every day. Like, yeah, we go run or we, we, we actually, my wife and I just ordered a Peloton before this and thank God. Because nice. uh, it's been it's been been huge. So yeah, I've uh, got my bikes out. Uh, you know, here in Vermont, it's it's. I mean, there's still snow on the ground from yeah. you know the other day, and but there's people outside bundled up riding around on bikes. So I got my <laughs> and I've got a couple of bikes. I got tuned up, and I'm meeting some folks at uh, yeah five thirty later today. <laughs> Stay six feet apart. Yeah, social you know, distance ride, when you do this. Ride and push <laughs> each other a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So so you leave Bucknell. For folks that don't know, so my wife and I used to drive through Bucknell, you know, basically monthly between going from Buffalo to Washington. Right. Uh, beautiful part of the world, for sure. When you, so you leave Bucknell, you go back to Massachusetts, and you sort of get involved. You talked a little bit about joining and working sort of on brownfields. Like, what? How did you decide to go that path? Yeah. So I, I mean, I, boy, there was some economic. Uh, there was an economic slowdown going on when I came out of college. I was fortunate to get a job in the environmental engineering field, which was a field that was you know, growing despite that, that slowdown in the early right. 90s. So I, I got a job with a, with a environmental engineering firm because I knew AutoCAD uh, and <laughs> I was helping doing drafting and 
I mean, it's an entry level job. You take what you can get when you're 22 years old. But I really came to like the work and obviously learned more on the job and and really, you know, as an as a lifelong environmentalist, I think it spoke to my interest in sort of, you know, cleaning up the world and right. protecting it for future generations. So was there any inklings at that point of like the idea of using this to develop something else, or was it still just not learning all. the learning the economy there? No, and you know, quite frankly, as a you know, as a young professional in my twenties, I got to work outside a lot, which, right. was, which was really great. But I really enjoyed it, and I really wanted to learn more about it, right? I mean, I think you just scratch the surface of things in the undergraduate experience. So I knew that going back to graduate school would allow me the opportunity to really dig deep into a field of study that I was quite interested in. And yeah. so, you know, I applied to a number of different schools, and the University of Vermont had the best uh, program as well as the best sort of financial package for me. So I decided to matriculate to Burlington way back in 1995. Yeah. And, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the outdoor uh, environmental community here speaks to me. Um, so right. I was uh, able to leverage that graduate school experience into, you know, another f- couple of jobs. Um, yeah. So what did you do coming out of, out of University of Vermont? Yeah, I, w- I ended up working for uh, a company over in Montpelier that was doing, you know, actually international work around uh, brownfield uh, assessments and cleanups. Oh, interesting. Uh, we were supporting other industries as they were uh, trying to assess their environmental liabilities globally. Um, so I actually got to travel around the world. And, you know, this is before kids and right. before things changed. So you, you, you can be gone for two, three weeks at a time. And, right. you know, it was an exciting career path for me for a while. It it did introduce me, I think, as the early 2000s rolled around, this concept of repurposing environmentally challenged or contaminated sites for more traditional forms of real estate development really started to uh, gain traction. Yeah. And I think that stirred additional interest in me um, to sort of take the next step in my career, which was to learn how to take some of the harder engineering skills that I was using and employ them in more of a you know, a development kind of arena, project yeah. management, development, really taking a big complicated project and breaking it down into a number of different manageable, you know, pieces and, and, and tackling it. And I learned a lot about just process and project management yeah. and, you know, things that I just wasn't exposed to directly through my schooling, but really, yeah, had some, some good experiences, worked on some interesting projects. So let me ask you a question before we get into the encore stuff with, with that sort of background, right? Coming to it as an engineer and now sort of seeing projects being developed, working on them, diving in. How has that experience helped you now as a sort of a CEO when you're overlooking whether it be a development pipeline or just a company budget, right? I mean, you're touching so many parts of Yeah. I think it's, it's really a process, right? I think it's, you know, it was gaining the tools that allowed me to, to sort of map out a process. And if you think about it as a solar project or an energy storage project, you know, there's a, you take a project from concept to commissioning. And um, how do you map out that whole process? And how do you do it in a way that various resources can plug in throughout the process along the way? So, you know, we've got a stage gate model where we break down the whole solar development process into a series of stages and decision points or gates. And, you know, right. we get to one of those decision points, we make a decision, whether it's a capital commitment meeting or 
something and uh, we go through the gate if we are all aligned and feeling comfortable. So we've mapped out that whole process. We also call it uh, value stream mapping. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've gone through, you know, a lot of the work that we've done at Encore over the last couple of years. I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but it, no, it's right. all around trying to systematize the platform, right? To make it a little bit more, uh, you know, allow different employees, allow different professionals to kind of plug into the process regardless of whether, you know, regardless of who that individual may be, right? Yeah. This is the process. Whoever is plugging in here knows what, knows what the process is and knows what to do. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's a major component of clean capital, right? We view it both process really as efficiency, right? So the more efficient you can do these DG projects, the better you can get a finance and the more up. margin there is, the better the returns. Yeah, yeah whatever. Yep. So yeah, let's let's jump into Encore. So you started Encore about ten years ago. First of all, like what what was the impetus? Like what? How did you decide that? Okay, I'm going to start my own company developing solar. Yeah. Well, so in order to answer that question, I think we just to jump back. You know, back to sort of my postgraduate school experience, which was working on these brownfield sites and and then realizing that, you know, I, I think this development, you know, project development is, you know, that I think that would be an interesting place for me to go. So really right. Encore was formed as Encore Redevelopment. Mm. And the whole, the whole uh, objective was to redevelop brownfield sites for commercial real estate endeavors. The world changed again in 2008, right? right. Got, the no, got the news that Lehman Brothers had failed and, you know, I'll never forget that moment. Driving in the car, hearing NPR, Lehman Brothers just failed. Right. right? Say, wait, how is that possible? Right. And so, you know, the world changed at that point, the, the way it's changing right now. And, and where uh, were you in that stage? Where were you in, in starting the company? I had done a couple of projects. I was probably a year in. I, start, I actually started Encore Redevelopment in August of 2007. As you. As mm-hmm. me. With a, right, I right, had right. a couple of, uh, you know, I hired a couple of interns from Middlebury and UVA yeah. <laughs> to help yeah. delegate some of the, you know, blocking and tackling. I mean, right. it was amazing. I, some of these interns had built some of the initial financial pro formas for, for Encore. So right, right, right. power of interns. I, I'm yeah. <laughs> a huge advocate. But anyways, so yeah, I think, well, what happened was as a result, then there was the election, the Obama administration, you know, had to create all kinds of stimulus uh, programs, as, as you yeah. know, that, and, you know, many of them were anchored around clean energy and clean tech. And so the proverbial light bulb went off over my head. So well, I guess I should also mention that at that same time, um, the governor here in Vermont, Governor Peter Shumlin, ran on and won on a whole, on basically a climate economy kind of platform. Oh, interesting, yeah. Where he was looking ahead and seeing renewable energy, solar and wind at that point, as potentially being transformative for the Vermont economy. And, you know, he was dead, he was dead on. Um, Right, totally. So anyways, those two signals really caused me, again, the light bulb went off over my head. I knew I had to go to the School of Hard Knocks to learn Solar, you know, solar design. Everyone did though then, right? I mean, really. Right, exactly. It was was not unique. Um, So, um, yeah, so uh, Vermont initiated a standard offer program. It was the only feed-in tariff program in the United States at the state level. City of Tallahassee had uh, a program. And Ontario up in Canada had one. But 
Anyway, so there was a named price, 30 cents per kilowatt hour for these standard offer contracts. So sure enough, that was the market signal that I think folks were looking for. Right. Everybody, all the traditional real estate developers, a lot of business owners, a lot of high net worth individuals sort of came in, saw this opportunity, and that was sort of a jumpstart to the Vermont uh, solar market. We, uh, we didn't, so that, that uh, program went to a lottery, and um, despite submitting five different brownfield and landfill sites into the lottery, we didn't win one of them. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah. we were able to work collaboratively with uh, a gentleman who did win one of the um, auction spots, and um, we helped him co-develop a three and a half megawatt, two point two megawatt DC, AC project, and we were kind of off to the races. Right, but yeah, but now you get a track record. And, yeah, it was right, really right. just sort of uh, you know those were, those were tough years, right? I mean, you know, to be having your head down, just trying to learn as much as you can, and yeah. Find as many opportunities as you can. You know, I think for a couple of years there, we might have done a couple hundred kilowatts per year. Right. I, I wrote a piece a while ago, and I've, I've talked about it before on the show, but about sort of solar finance uh, and the, the the growth of it. And you know, those are the years where people are like, one, what is I don't even know what do these tariffs mean? What's a PPA? Do these panels even work? And yeah. there's definitely is there enough sun in Vermont to make them work? Right. You know, versus where we are today, it's about the size and scale and, and offtake. And yeah, I, I refer to deals back in those days as uh, Frankenstein deals, right? right. <laughs> I feel like you needed a mission-driven investor, somebody you know who's interested in taking a four or five percent return, yeah. maybe less than that, just to do the right thing. Uh, you needed a grant, maybe two. You needed zero interest debt from a community development financing organization. Yeah, you needed all these things, and then maybe you could get a hundred and fifty kilowatt project done and. That would be such news that the governor and all the legislatures would come out for the press event, the ribbon cutting. Right. And that was, you know, those, those, yeah, those are tough. So, in, so looking now over 10 years, right. And, and give us some color as to how Encore has grown and scale. And I, I want to go back to, to the CDFI comment in a second, yeah. talk, you know, from just from a, a developer's perspective, like, you know, you're knocking out a couple hundred megawatts a year. So, you know, how, how did that change and grow here now that we're in 2020? Yeah. Well, well, for sure, I think we did a lot of legislative advocacy work. The standard offer program, you know, is still there and it's still the source of some project uh, opportunities. Right. Uh, really, Vermont, led by Green Mountain Power, quite frankly, created a virtual net metering program. Right. Uh, and, you know, they, at the time, they viewed solar as having six cents per kilowatt hour more value than the retail rate. So they were willing to pay more for solar at that time. Right. So really, the state kind of followed suit, and our virtual net metering program enjoyed a lot of success through 2013, 2014, 2015, and the 16. You know, it's it's changing. Uh, you know, I think that program has uh, there have been additional constraints put on that program, and you know, part of those, a lot of those constraints are are, are in our view justified. Right. Uh, we need to continue to be as competitive as possible. We need to move towards the locational value of generation, you know, preferred site siting and, and things yeah. like that. But yeah, it was largely the virtual net metering program that kind of kept us alive. For those as, as that, as that scale sort of happened, right. Going back to your earlier comments about being an engineer and efficiency, how have you seen sort of the efficiency of just the market as a whole change from having, you know, now all of a sudden, 
you know, probably the mid to, mid 2010s, you've got a qualified workforce, right? That people, there's more than two people that can be the EPC on these now. Like how, how has that sort of grown in scale for you guys and both with Encore, but just as a market as a whole? Yeah, I would say, yes. Uh, in terms of the skilled labor that we need, both on the construction end as well as the development end, right? Up yeah. front, you know, we, um, that, you know, the volume of solar engineers and, uh, you know, environmental experts who really can kind of speak a renewable energy language at this point. Um, the fact that all the uh, professionals in the legal and accounting communities have really come up the curve, that's all been tremendously helpful. Yeah. Uh, I, and I also think about where you sit, project financing, right? Again, getting back to that Frankenstein comment, right? I mean, that was, those were the days when there were just more opportunities out there than there was cash. Right. And now we're at a point where I, I feel like, and again, we're going to have to see what the effect of COVID-19 is here. Totally. But recently there'd been, in my view, in our view, a lot more money out there than there were good projects. Yeah. So, you know, for us, our focus has always been as an origination platform. You know, we've over the years discussed numerous times, like probably too many times to count, should we raise our own fund? And we've always come around to know because we, um, I think we excel at originating the best sites and the best projects and then driving them through the project development process and really minimizing the risk associated with the development process. And then, you know, now that we have, uh, you know, a, a wealth of project capital available, again, TBD where that ends up this year. Sure. But, uh, you know, I feel like that's been one of the greatest evolutions in this industry was just, is just the availability of low cost of capital. And hopefully that continues. I feel like both the capital, but, you know, as we, we have a, a belief that as the market continues to sort of be unsettled right now, these sort of steady assets, you know, people are going to be coming back, even if it's 5 and 6% returns, right? That's a place you can park your money. It's better than a 30% hit yeah. in some of these pension funds and others. 100% agreed. Yeah. We're all obviously trying to look at the, uh, the pros and cons of what we're going through here. And, and that could be something, right? Yeah. We come to this thing and, and hard assets have a, have a much greater value than, than stocks. Can you talk just for a second? I want to come back to CDFI, but with how much of your portfolio that you've developed has been on brownfields? And then for folks that are not familiar, just add some color to some of the you know, challenges, but also sort of opportunities that the brownfields face. Bring, you, know, you bet. Yeah. So I, I was just looking at this and, you know, I, you know, yes, we do specialize and focus on brownfields and landfills, parking lots. Uh, we do, we've done a number of rooftop projects. So all projects within that sort of, I call it a preferred site bucket, right. represent about 30% of the total number of projects that we've done. That's on a project basis, not a megawatt scale basis. I'd, I'd have to do that math. But yeah, because I, I think I'd be, what, one thing we did, one of the challenges associated with brownfields and landfills is that in a competitive, lowest per kilowatt hour price wins kind of environment, um, we're at a competitive disadvantage because landfills cost, you know, depending on scale of the project, anywhere between 10 and maybe 20% more right. to build. Um, because environmental uh, permits and other key yeah, it's 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 more on the hard construction end of things where we're not able to just drive right out into the field and drive piles and hang panels and pull wires you know we've got to use low tire pressure or track mounted Kubota rigs so it's just really it slows things down 
Right, right, right. And so it's really the labor cost associated with that, you know, taking a, a project that would normally take two or three months and kind of doubling that time scale. Um, there are additional incentives that help yes. bring that down. Can you talk about that for a second for people? Yeah, absolutely. So we've worked really hard in Vermont to try to advocate for, you know, I mean, because the benefits of the brownfields and landfills is you are siting generation generally much closer to load. Um, you are utilizing an under, otherwise undevelopable or very totally. to develop, develop site. These sites are generally not in residential, high view, aesthetically, you know, high quality areas. And um, yeah, and I think the general public is of the mind, look, yeah, if we're going to do solar projects, which take significant amounts of land, let's use the land that is not prime ag or uh, otherwise have a higher and better use for housing or other commercial real estate. So yeah, I'm, in, I'm in the, up here in Buffalo, we, we, we're seeing a lot of brownfield development for solar. We have a huge former industrial base. Yeah. And then I actually on the board of a group called Buffalo Waterkeeper, which is do a lot of ecosystem work here, mm-hmm. but they're now getting pulled into the solar discussion because all these local communities that they've done water ecosystem works for are now, you know, being approached by major developers. And they're like, well, what do we do? Like, what, right. what's the decision point on our, our ag? We're maybe, you know, underwater to begin with right now, or do we give up this prime location versus, you know, there's, you know, brownfield space. So. Well, you know, yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, one of the other benefits that we're seeing actually comes from the regulatory community. We've seen actually members of the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation actually approach us and ask if we can engage with a landfill owner. Maybe it's a private landfill owner, uh, could be municipal, and they're viewing the lease payments that we can provide that landowner as financial security for being able to continue the environmental remediation or monitoring or whatever the environmental costs, annual environmental costs are, right? they're viewing us as being able to essentially securitize those future payments so that the regulators can continue you know, to do their jobs, which is you know, make sure they're protecting human health and the environment. Right, right, right. So is the reason you guys were working with CDFIs, first of all, can you explain what that is for folks that aren't familiar, but is that because of the Bromfield work or were you doing that just in general before? Yeah. So I, I think we did. Um, yes. So we, we've secured um, financing from a few CDFIs, community development financing institutions. Right. You know, the first um, slug of capital that we received was from the Vermont Economic Development Authority or VITA, who have a statutorily defined mission to support entrepreneurial activities, especially you know, in certain industries like energy and food and, right. and tourism. And then we, so we saw that as a good sort of source of capital and, and, you know, and, and in doing so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lower cost of capital, right? Right. But it also aligned us with an organization that's now, you know, helping us to succeed. We've also secured funding from the Vermont Flex, Flexible Capital Fund, um, who have been tremendous as uh, you know investor partners. Right. It's again, it's a mission driven. You know, is it like almost like a private private partnership there? Or is that all state money or no? That is uh, well, there is some state money. There's the Vermont Community Foundation it supports them, but there are oh, some sweet. with individuals who are mission driven impact investors. Right. Who are interested again in in the Vermont Flexible Capital Fund? They're targeting renewable energy companies food and beverage companies, 
working landscape companies. Right, right, right. So, you know, kind of in tune with Vermont's kind of ethos. But the, the most recent round of funding that we got from them, they brought in the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund and Coastal Enterprises out of Portland, Maine. And right. that was of interest to us because while we were, we were raising that capital to begin to deploy our go-to-market strategies in those two markets that are not our home market. So this is all sort of pre-NTP development capital using, right? Working capital. Working yeah, capital, growth, yeah. Growth capital. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yep. So again, and, and you know, now that we have New, and New Hampshire, the New Hampshire market's been a little slower to develop, as you're probably aware. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've done nothing there yet. Yeah, uh, we've done one project there. So, um, but what, but the, you know, we have them kind of as a resource to help us understand and make connections, boots on the ground, um, and 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 really, you know, help us uh, succeed in that new market. And uh, Coastal Enterprises in Portland, another good example. Through them, uh, we've met a lot of the players over there. Um, they now have a vested interest in our success in that market, and right. they've been a source of uh, a lot of intelligence and, and contact information. So uh, I want to talk about sort of the future of Encore in a second, but just in your sort of corporate structure, right? I mean, you've got you're talking about a lot of different buckets that you're touching, right, to yeah. pull this capital from, which is great, right? And creative. Um, who run? Who manages that within your team? Yeah. So it, um, you know. You're able to either free up, or are you doing it, or do you have like a, a someone specifically doing that type of management? Yeah, no, I mean that may all of that work falls under the purview of our CFO, COO, uh, Blake Sterk. Oh, right, okay, Blake. Who, gotcha. You know, Blake has uh, he comes to Encore with a 15 year track record at Morgan Stanley as an investment banker, right? Um, really, you know, highly fluent in all things finance, and uh. So yeah, it, uh, our finance Full transparency. Blake's one of my favorite people in the industry. That's how I met you guys. He's awesome, really awesome. So. Glad to hear that. He's one of my yeah. favorite. He actually is a Bucknell grad as well. So we, oh, he is. We go all the way back. Yeah. What is it? The Bisons, right? Yep. He was, uh, he was a year below me at oh, Bucknell. That's funny. But yeah, that's lots funny. of mutual friends, and obviously we've become a lot closer in adulthood here. <laughs> um, but, so what is what is the two thousand twenties look like for you guys? Sorry, 2020. What did the 2020s look like? Going oh, forward? yeah. You a decade in, what's the next decade look like? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, again, we're kind of waiting to see what the next two, three, four, five months look like. True. But taking that variable out, you know, we are interested in in growing the team. You know, I think we've we've established a, a fair... How many are the team now about? Uh, there's 12 of us. Oh, great. Twelve of us on the team with uh, right now one intern. Sometimes we'll have two or three. Um, right now one. Yeah, I think it's 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 growth, right? It's right. Uh, how do we capitalize on the work that we've done in the past, the reputation that we've earned. You know, all of our projects are referenceable. And how do we again systematize the platform so that more people can come in and essentially do more work? It's the same stuff, right? It's the same process. There's just going to be more of us doing it. So I think, you know, we're interested in, you know, establishing presence in some of these other markets. At sort some, of organic growth, like moving to New Hampshire, Maine, it's, New York, yeah. to, you know, geographically to start to, you're not, you're not jumping to Seattle. No, no, no. We're, we're going to be focused on the Northeast. That'll include Pennsylvania, maybe, you know, some other states uh, that yeah. are south than us. 
There may be a couple of flyers that we'll take. Uh, for example, we're looking at a 12 megawatt portfolio in uh, Western North Carolina, somewhat mm-hmm. randomly, but there's uh, our chief development officer is from that area and has some connections there. And right. so, uh, we've been able to, you know, we're feeling decent about that opportunity. So, but largely it's a Northeast focus. Uh, we're going to absolutely, um, you know, storage is a big part of our uh, future plans. We're of the mind right. that we, you know, if you're just a solar development company uh, in five years, I think you're out of business. Totally. I think you've got to really, and especially in advanced markets like Vermont, we can't do much more solar until we unlock the potential that is energy storage. Totally. And I'm talking both short-term lithium-ion kind of stuff and longer-term. You know, we're we're involved in a in a large, uh, long-duration uh, project that we're pitching here in Vermont. Uh, with a group called Highview Power, uh, based in London, who have a uh, liquefied air uh, hmm. storage technology. Again, long duration, fifty megawatts. Um, so big, big, you know, yeah, uh, projects. So, you know, we're we're going to be, you know, we're we're not just going to be a solar developer. We're going to be solar and storage energy services provider. We will be looking to raise additional capital again. TBD as to when that was going to be occurring. Oh, you got my emails. So I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I think we would have been looking at that later this year. You know, I, I, we may have to push that back a little bit, but before we wrap up, I do want to hit on one thing, which is we've talked about this in the podcast in the past pollinators. Uh, we, we talked before about sort of the drive in Vermont to ensure that there's pollinators on these sites. Just talk for a second about, you know, why you guys see this as a benefit and, you know, how it's working for you. Yeah. So I, I think this comes back to our, our status, our, our mission, basically, and our vision, which is to use business as a force for good. And, you know, we try to think about the impact of our Love work from, from more of just a, a financial perspective. You know, as a, as a B Corp, um, we're always thinking about the triple bottom line. So what kind of social benefit is, are our projects providing or our work? And what kind of environmental benefits? I think the environmental benefits are a little easier to quantify. But yep. you know, with, the, with the example of pollinators, I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a big need, right? I mean, our food security kind of depends on getting totally. this you know, turned around and getting these pollinators back to a more healthy status. You know, it's interesting we did do pollinators. Uh, we've done pollinators on a number of our projects here in Vermont, and I've got a good anecdote for you. One of the projects is in Hinesburg, Vermont. We had some neighbors there that were less than thrilled that we were using this site for a 2.1 megawatt solar array. We worked them through it. We built a berm. We visually screened it. We got them there. And you know, we let them know we we're going to be planting pollinators. Well, two years, maybe it's three years now, we heard from others in the town that their gardens are now just flourishing. Uh. <laughs> the tree that hadn't delivered apples in years was right. now just like, you know, they were falling off the tree. Right. Uh, their, their, their gardens, their vegetables, everything so much better because they've got this thriving pollinator population right That's next amazing. to them. Yeah. Rob Davis from Fresh Energy, who... Uh, it told me about a story about in Minnesota that farmers are actually rotating their crops around some of these places because it, it just makes sense. Awesome. So, yeah. so I always, I always end the podcast with a, a final question. If you went back to yourself, 
coming out of Becknell and could sit down and, and have a beer with yourself, what piece of advice would you give? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to close. You know, I, I, I think I would have told myself to, you know, chill out a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> no, I mean, I, seriously, I, I look back and like, you know, what I did in my early twenties, yeah, it ended up, it ended up being, I think applicable to the rest of my career, but there are so many instances where that's not the case. And I think it's right. so important and I'm going to impart this with my kids is you really got to love what you're doing. You really got to be emotionally and intellectually invested in what you're doing. You got to have a passion for it. Yep. So maybe you got to take 20 years, 22 through 25 or whatever that number is. Cause I mean, let's face it. I mean, nobody, not many people make their career between 22 and 20. No, no. Some people do, but Mark so Zuckerberg, other than that. Yeah, I would have said, <laughs> find something that you really, really love. And if you've got a, you know, hopefully they can afford to be able to do that. There's obviously yeah. financial implications there, but to really just develop a passion, follow that passion, and, you know, watch yourself just thrive. Yeah, I love it. Well, good. Jan, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome, John. This has, been, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Yeah, and I want to thank specifically Lauren Glickman for helping to set this up. Uh, she's been a, she actually helped me start the podcast years ago. Uh, and Carly Batten, our producer. For those who are, are joining us, please go to cleancapital.com to get more, more episodes. And as always, send me uh, folks that you think should be good guests. And I hope you continue listening. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.